The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. This episode features strong sexual language, discussions of sexual situations, and suicide that some people may find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. If you or anyone you know is having suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. August 22, 1972. In the dead of summer, the New York City asphalt practically boiled. 27-year-old John Wadowitz parked his car in front of a bank on the corner of Delancey and Essex Street, the manufacturer's Hanover Trust. In the rearview mirror, he watched 18-year-old Sal Naturale climb out of the back seat and head towards the bank. 20-year-old Bobby Westenberg followed, carrying a long cardboard box. It was painted yellow-green and decorated to look like a giant piece of Wrigley's spearmint gum a piece of pop art. But it was heavy, and Bobby struggled with the weight. Then, as he attempted to get a better grip, a shotgun slid out of the back of the gum box. Everyone on the street froze at the sound of the blast, including Bobby and Sal, staring wide-eyed in shock. John leapt out from the driver's seat and scooped up the shotgun. He corralled the other men into the back seat of the car, then screeched away before someone called the cops. John yelled, what's the matter with you? Bobby sputtered out excuses. He told them the box was too heavy. John just scoffed. Oh, you wimp, Bobby. Be butch, will ya? Sal continued to tease him as he sulked in the back seat. Bobby couldn't handle a gun any better than he could handle a man, and Sal could prove it. He reached between Bobby's legs, making him shriek. John told them both to cut it out. He didn't care who screwed who, but they weren't doing anything until after they robbed a bank. (laughs) 
This is Hostage, a ParCast original. Every week, we tell the stories behind the most captivating hostage situations and the people inside them. We'll also cover the psychological tactics used in kidnapping situations and what the human brain does when held captive. I'm Irma Blanco. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Hostage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Hostage for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Hostage in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help. Well, this is our first of three episodes on John Wadowitz. On August 22, 1972, John attempted to rob a bank. But the police surrounded the building almost immediately, cutting off their escape. In an attempt to leverage a getaway, John took nine bank employees hostage. In today's episode, we'll explore the circumstances that led John to walk into a Chase Manhattan bank with a loaded shotgun on a desperate search for cash. In the next two episodes, we'll follow the 14-hour standoff between John and the NYPD. The entire affair was broadcast on live television with wall-to-wall coverage even interrupting a speech by President Richard Nixon. 2,000 Brooklynites flooded the neighborhood streets surrounding the bank to watch. The story was so captivating, it inspired a novel and a movie, both called Dog Day Afternoon. To truly understand John Wadowitz's motivations, we have to start at the beginning. He was born in Brooklyn, New York on March 9, 1945, the second of Teresa Basso Wadowicz's three sons. Teresa described John as a good kid who didn't get into any trouble. He loved to play baseball, collected stamps, and was interested in politics. John graduated from Erasmus High School in 1964 with high marks. Strong in math, he started working as a teller at a branch of Chase Manhattan Bank. During his first year on the job, John went on a work-sponsored ski trip in Massachusetts. There, he met Carmen Ann Bafulco, who also worked for Chase. John was immediately struck with a young typist and asked her out. Carmen alleged that John showed up to their first date with two other young women and declared, one of you are going to be my lucky bride in the future. Well, at the time, Carmen thought he was crazy, but couldn't help but be charmed by his brash machismo. And in the end, John's prophecy came true. The pair were engaged by the spring of 1966. But before the young lovers could walk down the aisle, their romance was interrupted. I have today ordered to Vietnam the Air Mobile Division and certain other forces which will raise our fighting strength from 75,000 to 125,000 men almost immediately. Additional forces will be needed later and they will be sent as requested. John was drafted to serve in the Vietnam War. He said of his conscription, I was a Goldwater Republican, which means I'm conservative, which means I'm also a warmonger. So I was willing to go to the war and fight. John and Carmen wanted to get married before he shipped out in October of 1966. But Carmen's family wouldn't allow it. 
She said her parents were afraid that John might die overseas. John said they hoped he'd die because they despised him. After spending a few months of his deployment in Saigon, John was eventually transferred to Da Nang Air Base near the demilitarized zone dividing North and South Vietnam. But not long after his arrival, in February of 1967, the base was attacked by rockets. The majority of soldiers in John's unit were killed. John was discharged shortly after, but the experience changed his entire worldview. He said of that time, I went from being a Goldwater conservative to a McCarthy peacenik, because if we're not gonna win the war, why should all these young kids die for nothing? We lost 50,000 people over there. Despite his traumatic war experience, when John returned, he and Carmen moved forward with their engagement. And on October 21st, 1967, the couple married in St. Rita's Church in Brooklyn. But the relationship was rocky from the very beginning. During the reception, Carmen's father brought up the cost of the wedding. He demanded John give him part of their gift money to help cover the cost of the ceremony. Carmen, out of respect for her father, pressured John to pay up. After a shouting match, John eventually threw a wad of cash into his new father-in-law's face and stormed out. Carmen chased after him, hot on his heels in her white taffeta dress. The priest nearly annulled the marriage on the spot. This set the tone for the entire relationship. John and Carmen argued constantly, and the arrival of two children in quick succession did nothing to ease the tension. By June of 1969, less than two years later, the marriage was over. Carmen came home from work one night to find that John had moved out of their apartment and taken most of their possessions with him. John's mother, Teresa, agreed that John and Carmen's relationship wasn't meant to be. She'd seen a marked change in her son since his return from Vietnam. She said, the service screwed him all up. Whatever happened, I don't know. He went from one extreme to another, from daylight to darkness. Indeed, John had been changed by his time in Vietnam, but it wasn't the trauma over losing his fellow soldiers that had so affected him. During basic training, John had his first sexual experience with another man. According to John, he woke up one night to find a fellow soldier named Wilbur performing fellatio on him while he slept. When Wilbur asked if he wanted him to stop, John allowed him to keep going. They continued this strictly sexual relationship throughout their time in basic training. John explained, Wilbur blew great. He was like a summer breeze. When John returned from Vietnam, he resumed his heterosexual relationship with Carmen and didn't see any other men. However, just days after John and Carmen separated, the Stonewall riots exploded in Greenwich Village, igniting the gay rights movement. Mark Siegel, a witness to the riot, recounted his experience on the 50th anniversary. On uh, the night of June 27th slash 28th, 1969, uh, as an 18-year-old, I was inside of, uh, police came in, I should say barged in, started uh, throwing people or tossing people up against the wall. Uh, eventually, there were more of us outside the bar 
than them inside the bar because you only had six police officers and the people who worked at the bar. It sparked something in John. Following the end of his marriage in the summer of 1969, 24-year-old John came out. He got involved with the growing gay scene in New York City and the Gay Activist Alliance, or GAA. Unlike the Gay Liberation Front, which wanted to dissolve traditional heteronormative social structures, the GAA sought to work within the established system to bring more rights to gay people. They encouraged members to live openly, to demonstrate to the rest of the world that everyone already knew someone who was queer. John became a regular at the GAA headquarters, located in a former firehouse on Worcester Street in Greenwich Village. And soon, he adopted a new name along with this new lifestyle, Little John Basso. John explained, Little, because my prick is little. Basso, so people would know I was Italian. At first, John was mostly interested in the social aspects of GAA instead of the political ones. He joined the Entertainment Committee, which put on Friday night dances at the Worcester Firehouse. The parties planned by the committee gave gay men and women an opportunity to flirt and socialize in a safe space. John admitted that he especially liked serving as a greeter at the GAA dances because it allowed him to meet and sleep with lots of people. He said, I could have sex with new members quicker than anybody else because they were just coming out. And in those days, we did a lot of getting down. We should note that there was a pervasive stereotype in the 1960s and 70s that perpetuated the idea that gay men are hypersexual or even sexually deviant. This homophobic stigma feeds a misconception that gay men will try to have sex with any man on the street and will even resort to sexual assault. And therefore, gay men should be feared. But in the culture of GAA at the time, John was an anomaly. Journalist Randy Wicker, who was also a member of the GAA in the early 1970s, said, John was considered a disgrace. He would fall on a couch and start having sex with somebody in a semi-public place. His reputation within GAA was, this guy is a looney tune. It's possible that John had hypersexual disorder, which psychologist Martin Kafka defines as non-paraphilic, dysregulated sexual behavior consisting of diminished control over sexual urges, fantasies, and behaviors. However, the American Psychological Association decided not to include this definition in the most recent version of the DSM-5 because there was not enough clinical evidence to suggest that such a disorder truly exists. Critics of Kafka's definition believe that the research used to support this classification disproportionately stigmatizes LGBTQ men. Dr. David J. Lay, author of The Myth of Sex Addiction, said, Hypersexual disorder already pathologizes male sexuality, and the heightened sexuality of gay and bi males suffers this attack even further. Hypersexual disorder turns being a gay or bisexual man into a disease. Moreover, even research that accepts the controversial definition of hypersexuality disproves its prevalence in LGBTQ men. A 2013 study conducted by the City University of New York in partnership with the Center for HIV AIDS Educational Studies and Training found that 
There are more highly sexually active LGBTQ males without hypersexuality, approximately 80%, than highly sexually active LGBTQ males with hypersexuality, approximately 20%. Kafka's definition of hypersexual disorder is limited because it doesn't readily distinguish between a person with a high libido and someone with uncontrollable compulsions. And despite the sex-obsessed behavior that Randy Wicker and others described, John Wadowitz was never formally diagnosed with any kind of compulsive disorder or sex addiction. By the summer of 1971, 26-year-old John found more than just hookups in the GAA. He grew more interested in the political side of the movement. That June, a New York City clerk made threats against a gay priest who was officiating same-sex wedding ceremonies. So the GAA decided to zap him. A zap was a nonviolent but attention-grabbing demonstration meant to embarrass anti-gay public figures. The GAA organized several zaps over the years. Targets included New York Mayor John Lindsay, Governor Nelson Rockefeller, and even the New York Daily News. That summer, the GAA stormed the city clerk's office to demand marriage licenses for John and three other men. But this particular zap was styled as an engagement party, complete with a giant cake and champagne. John and the other GAA demonstrators even printed invitations which read... The Honorable Herman Katz, city clerk, invites you to an engagement reception for Mr. John Basso and John C. Bond and Mr. Steve Croats and Vito Russo. All are welcome. Dress optional. This mock engagement proved to be prophetic. Two days after the zap, John met his second wife, Lizzie Eden. Liz, born Ernest Aaron, was transgender. The pair met at a neighborhood street festival on June 6, 1971. For John, it was love at first sight. He immediately started courting her. Liz described John as very, very romantic. She said he never forgot a date, never forgot a birthday, Christmas, anniversary, or anything. In the beginning, it was a dozen roses almost every time we saw each other. Six months later, in December... They were married. And only eight months after that, John robbed a bank for his new bride. Coming up, John and Lizzie's marriage goes south. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. On December 4th, 1971, 26-year-old John Wadowitz married his 25-year-old transgender partner, Liz Eden, in a non-legally binding ceremony. It was at once the most traditional and untraditional union to ever take place in Greenwich Village. Liz spent close to $1,000 on her flowing white wedding dress, complete with a veil and train. 
Her bridesmaids wore matching red velvet gowns with red bows tied in their wigs. The ceremony was officiated by the same priest who'd been threatened by the New York City clerk. And the reception was held at a cafe across the street from the 6th Precinct building of the NYPD. Liz said the cops came out and congratulated us, thinking we were all girls. The entire wedding party was all guys. And when we came out for the reception, they found out. They said, hey, we didn't know this was all happening. And I said, neither did the priest. In 1971, marriage equality wasn't on the agenda for activist groups like the GAA. They were just looking for recognition as people, not the legal right to hold a heteronormative ceremony. At the time, Liz and John's wedding was so unique that journalist Randy Wicker videotaped it for the GAA's archive. Wicker was particularly intrigued that John's mother, Teresa, attended. He said... John was the apple of her eye. You could just see this woman just loved her son so much that almost anything he did would not cause her to reject him. That same December, John and Liz moved into an apartment together on West 10th Street in Greenwich Village. But after a few short months, their relationship took a turn. One afternoon in April, John came home from work to find a letter taped to the front door. It read, Dearest John, I'm sorry I won't be able to see you tonight, as by the time you read this note, I'll be in Florida. I'm really sorry it ended this way, but I just can't take it any longer. But it wasn't the relationship that Liz couldn't take any longer. She couldn't take being trapped in a biologically male body any longer. When someone feels that their biological sex doesn't match their true gender. This is called gender dysphoria or gender incongruence. Dr. David Ludden, a professor of psychology at Georgia Gwinnett College said, people suffering from gender dysphoria are fundamentally unhappy with the disconnect between sex and gender that they perceived within themselves. And they feel a need to fix something. The approach to treating the condition is to find a way to line up the two. For several decades, gender incongruence was pathologized as gender identity disorder. However, in recent years, it has been reclassified as a sexual health issue rather than a mental health disorder. Nonetheless, the DSM-5 notes that Gender dysphoria in adults and children is considered a disorder if the person also experiences significant distress or impairment in major areas of life as a result of the incongruence. John wasn't aware of Liz's gender incongruence when they walked down the aisle, and he was opposed to her having surgery. He explained, At the time, I was interested in a guy with big tits and a little prick. But Liz wanted to be a woman, and in the beginning, I didn't realize how badly she wanted to be this woman. Eventually, he convinced her to come back home to the marriage without getting the operation. But she was deeply unhappy. On several occasions, she attempted suicide. Once, Liz threatened to stab herself with a butcher knife. While trying to stop her, John grabbed it by the blade. This sent the couple into a scuffle, and they grappled over it, screaming. There was so much commotion and blood that one of the neighbors called the police. 
This incident was closely followed by another outburst. Liz punched through a plate glass window, severely cutting her arm. Eventually, John realized that Liz would never be happy and never stop hurting herself until she had her operation. So he agreed to let her go through with it. However, there was still the issue of paying for the surgery. It would cost close to $10,000, just over $61,000 today. But John promised Liz that he would figure out a way to get the money, even though he was out of work. He planned to give the funds to her for her birthday on August 19, 1972. But when the day came, John didn't have the cash. All he had to offer Liz was his customary dozen red roses. She was destroyed. The next day, while John was out of the house, Liz took drastic action. She said, I went to a few drugstores and I bought Salmonex and met some people in the street and bought some downs off of them. And then I went back home and I started taking all the pills. I started to pass out around seven or so. I had ringing in my ears. I was frothing at the mouth for a while and I remember I started to get body shakes. And the next thing I remember, I was in Kings County Hospital. The next morning, John rushed to the hospital to see Liz and take her home with him. But the doctors refused to let her leave. After hearing about her desire to have gender reassignment surgery, they believed that Liz needed serious psychological treatment, possibly electroshock therapy. Her doctors told John that she wouldn't be cured for a very long time. It could take months, potentially even years. John left the hospital despondent. That day, on August 21st, as he stood on the train back to Greenwich Village, John made a decision. He had to do something drastic. If they weren't going to let Liz leave, he was going to take her out by force. John went to a neighborhood bar, Old Jimmy's, to try to come up with a plan. He figured his best chance was to storm the hospital, grab Liz, then flee to Denmark, where they could hide out and find a doctor willing to do the surgery. But again, there was the problem of money, and not just for the surgery, but now also for the flights and to fund their life on the run. But even with a gun, storming the hospital wasn't a one-man job. John needed help. While he sat contemplating this, 18-year-old Sal Natarale walked into old Jimmy's. John immediately waved him over. Sal had a reputation in Greenwich as a tough guy who knew his way around the system. He'd been in and out of jails and boys' homes since he was 11 for everything from truancy to pickpocketing to parole violations. Sal was allegedly a fugitive on the run from the New Jersey police for felony theft. Apparently, he hid in a department store until after closing. Once everyone had cleared out, he forged a receipt for a cash purchase of two television sets. Then he returned to his hiding spot overnight. The next morning, when the store filled up with customers, Sal reemerged. He picked up two TVs off the display, one under each arm, and headed for the exit. When the security guard stopped him, Sal flashed the forged receipt and went on his way. Then he went straight to the pawn shop. He got away with this scam for a few weeks, but eventually the store manager discovered the thefts when he tallied the inventory. 
The next time Sal came in, the security guard recognized him and called the cops. But while they were carting him off to the police station, Sal managed to slip away. The last time he'd gone to jail, Sal was brutally sexually assaulted. He was never going back, no matter what. So he fled New Jersey and found a place to live under the radar, the bustling gay community of Greenwich Village. John thought he would make the perfect accomplice. The pair brainstormed at Old Jimmy's. Sal agreed that what John really needed was a bunch of money. If Sal was going to help him bust Liz out of county hospital and risk being caught as a fugitive, he damn well better be paid for it, and handsomely. But John bristled. They needed the money for Liz's surgery. 20-year-old Bobby Westenberg was also sitting at the bar that night and overheard their conversation. He perked up at the word surgery. He commiserated with Liz's circumstances. He needed an operation himself to fix a bad lung. Sometimes Bobby thought about just walking into a bank and holding the place up. What was the risk if he was dead anyway without the treatment? A light bulb went off for John. That's exactly what they should do. Rob a bank. Sal nearly choked on his beer with laughter. So what, they were going to pull two jobs now? First rob a bank and then storm the hospital? Why not? John loved the idea. It solved all their problems. But Sal was unconvinced. You'd have to pay me at least 50 grand to go along with that. Done, John said. 50 for each of them, Sal and Bobby both, and the rest for Liz's surgery. Bobby and Sal looked at each other, then back at John. He was dead serious. And just like that, the three men had arranged a bank heist. Coming up, John and the boys follow through on their barroom plan. Now, back to the story. In the summer of 1972, after his wife, Liz Eden, was hospitalized for a suicide attempt, 27-year-old John Wadowitz decided he had to take drastic action. Spring her out, fly to Europe, and arrange for her to have sexual reassignment surgery. So on the night of August 21st, John recruited 18-year-old Sal Naturale and 20-year-old Bobby Westenberg to help him rob a bank. John figured they needed to steal between $150,000 and $200,000 to cover all their bases. Bobby and Sal would each walk away with 50 grand. John would use the rest of the money to hop on a plane to Denmark with Liz and pay for her surgery. With their plan in place, the three men then left old Jimmy's bar and went to find some guns. John borrowed a pistol, a rifle, and a shotgun from a friend, not telling him what he intended to use the firearms for. Then, with the newly acquired guns in tow, they drove to the Golden Nugget Hotel in Chinatown to hash out the rest of the details. They needed to figure out a way to hide the guns when they walked into the bank to make sure they didn't tip off any security guards. John decided to paint a long, slender cardboard box yellow-green, then decorate it to look like a giant piece of Wrigley's gum. He figured people would just think it was an art project, a foolproof plan. The next morning, August 22nd, John, Bobby, and Sal got up and prepared for the robbery. 
they hit up a movie theater on 42nd Street and watched The Godfather for inspiration. John felt like a coach pumping up his team before a big game. When he wrote out the robbery note to hand to the bank teller, he signed it, this is an offer you can't refuse. Afterward, John parked in front of the manufacturer's Hanover Trust Bank on Delancey and Essex Street on the Lower East Side. Then he sent Bobby and Sal in to hold the place up. But as the men stepped away from the car, the shotgun slipped out of the Wrigley's gun box and fell to the pavement, firing off a shot. Before any onlookers could call the police, John rushed Sal and Bobby back into the car and skidded off, berating his accomplices for the mishap. Then they went in search of another bank, and this time John would carry the shotgun. They drove to another bank they were more familiar with in Queens Howard Beach. It was one of the few branches in that part of the neighborhood, so they figured it did good business and would have a full vault. The three men walked inside. Sal would take care of the security guard while John would force the bank manager to open the safe. Bobby would corral any people waiting in line. But as soon as they broke off from each other, one of the customers called out, How you doing, Bobby? It was his mom's best friend. She waved him over to say hello and chatted for a moment. Sal and John quietly slipped outside. They couldn't rob this place either not with a witness who could so easily identify them. When Bobby finished talking to his mom's friend, the three men went back to the car and headed to an entirely different part of town. They didn't want to risk running into anyone else they knew. After these two hiccups, they realized there were a lot of details they hadn't really worked out beforehand. So at their next stop, a Chase Manhattan bank, they decided to rehearse their getaway. First, they went into the bank to make a normal transaction, changing some bills into silver dollars. Then they raced out to the car and tried to speed away. But in their haste, they hit another parked car in the lot. The other driver was furious, even more so when John hesitated to exchange information. The driver threatened to call the police. Worried that the cops would search the car and find their guns, John quickly placated them, handing over all the money he had in his wallet and his telephone number. Satisfied, the driver finally let John, Sal, and Bobby leave. Even after three strikeouts, John wasn't ready to give up. He turned the car towards Brooklyn. He knew a good bank, the perfect bank. John was displaying signs of the sunk cost fallacy. Identified by psychologists Hal R. Arks and Catherine Bloomer, this describes our tendency to stick with something that we've already invested a great deal of time, money, or energy into, even if the results are unfavorable. John had made up his mind that this was the only way to save Liz. He was robbing a bank today, no matter what. But while this series of failures only made John more determined, it caused Bobby Westenberg to have serious doubts. While John crowed in the driver's seat, telling his compatriots they were all about to be rich, Bobby silently wondered how he had gotten mixed up in the absurd scheme at all. John parked behind the Chase Bank at Avenue P and East 3rd Street in Brooklyn. The three men got out, Sal carrying the Wrigley's box. 
It was just before closing time, so this was their last shot. The banks wouldn't open again until tomorrow morning. John reminded them of the plan as they walked up to the door. Sal would take out the security guard. They'd grab the money, lock the employees inside the vault, and run. No one needed to get hurt. But as soon as they walked through the front doors, Bobby stopped suddenly and grabbed John by the arm. He couldn't go through with it. John was dumbfounded. What did he mean he couldn't do it? They were doing it already. But Bobby shook his head. No, no, I gotta go. And he ran out the door. John couldn't believe it. What was he going to do now? Call the whole thing off? John's head was reeling, but he looked over at Sal, already in place near the security guard. This was his last chance. He had to do it. John crossed himself in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Then he walked over to Sal. They both pulled their guns from the box, and John yelled, Okay, nobody move. Back up. Nobody touch any alarms. We don't want any problems. Everybody does what I tell them, and everything will be all right. And we'll be out of here in five minutes. While Sal held up the employees, John stormed behind the teller counter and started shoving cash in his bag. Even though it was the end of the day, there wasn't as much money as he expected. Only about $38,000 in cash. Not even enough to pay Sal, let alone the rest. But then he found a stack of traveler's checks, totaling almost $175,000. Jackpot. John grabbed the checks as Sal kept his eyes and gun trained on the security guard and the bank manager, Robert Barrett. Then suddenly, the phone sitting on Barrett's desk started ringing. Sal told him to answer it, not wanting to raise any suspicions. On the other end of the line was another Chase employee, Joe Ontario. He worked in HR and had called to talk to Barrett about transferring one of his tellers to a different branch. Wanting to alert Ontario to the situation without tipping off Sal, Barrett rejected the transfer. Instead, he suggested that Ontario move a different employee. Ontario was confused. The person Barrett suggested had been fired four months ago for theft. He said, you're talking funny, Bob. Is something wrong down there? Barrett confirmed with a, yep, then hung up the phone, maintaining the cheery, everything's fine facade for Sal. Suspicious, Ontario immediately called the FBI. Ten minutes after walking into the bank, John and Sal had finished the job. John told Barrett to open the vault. They were going to lock everyone inside. He promised to call the cops to let them out once they had gotten far enough away. But as they were gathering everyone up, John saw figures moving outside the window, men in bulletproof vests, the police. They were everywhere, standing on fire escapes, crouching on roofs, hiding behind corners. The whole place would be completely surrounded in a matter of seconds. There would be no escape. Sal started to sweat. He wasn't going back to jail. Never. Not ever. What were they going to do? But John already had a new plan. They had nine hostages to barter with. He said, 
I'm going to tell the cops to go to the nut house and bring Liz down here. We're going to get on a plane. We're going to fly to Denmark and get the sex change operation. Sal scoffed. He was crazy. That was never going to happen. John just shook his head. Watch. Thanks again for tuning in to Hostage. We will be back next Thursday with part two of John Wadowitz's story. We'll detail the negotiations between John and the police during a 14-hour standoff that was broadcast live across the nation. For more information on John Wadowitz, amongst the many sources we used, we found Frank Karadran and Alison Berg's documentary, The Dog, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Hostage and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Hostage, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Hostage on Spotify, just open the app and type Hostage in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. In the meantime, don't take your freedom for granted. Hostage was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Joel Stein. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode is written by Abigail Cannon and stars Irma Blanco and Carter Roy. Carter Roy